Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Today, we're joined by friend of the podcast, Haven Pell. He's been on before, and we've been talking about politics and economics and all sorts of different subjects that we think really revolve around different pieces of life for whether it's the 1% or people who have made it in certain circumstances. We're going to talk a little bit today about something that I think gets away from politics and things that are controversial, and it's an area of love for Haven, and it's the subject of court tennis. He's involved in a project right now in, in building one, and so we're going to get to hear about that. But it's such a peculiar sport and peculiar by way of how idiosyncratic it is and what a small subset play it that I thought it'd be fun to talk a little bit more about it. Meanwhile, Haven's blog and podcast type of material can be found at thepundificator.com. His blog comes out quite frequently, and I'm going to be referencing it with regard to an article that he wrote on court tennis and his court tennis project. So Haven, welcome back. Thank you, Fraser. Nice to be with you. Nice to reconnect. We're in the midst of December right now, and it looks like uh, the world's going to shut back down a little bit. So anything where we can distract ourselves with a fun subject like court tennis, I think we're in good business here. Excellent. I look forward to it. Court tennis, I've played it a few times, and there are a few things about it that I think are interesting. It's part tennis, so you have players on both sides of a net. It's part paddle in the sense that you can use the walls. It's got its own idiosyncrasies with regard to the racket, which is, some would describe it as off-shaped or peculiar. And it's got a whole bunch of things that weld different racket sports together. And it has its own framework where each particular court has its own personality, not unlike Major League Baseball stadiums. Maybe help us out here with a brief history of where court tennis came from and what you see are its interesting features. Court tennis does, in fact, relate to the other games, as you mentioned. However, it is more of a parent-child relationship. Court tennis has existed for seven, eight, nine hundred years, maybe a thousand. It depends what the earliest references were or that you can find. It had about 300 years with no rules, and people simply played a ball game in an environment where they lived. Perhaps as a child, you played roof ball with brothers or neighbors or whatever, or sisters, and the kids would invent a game that might involve tossing a tennis ball up onto a roof, and this was a good result, this was a bad thing, this was a rule, and then those games disappeared when the children grew up. And the next kids moved into the house and they created their own game. And court tennis really began a lot like that. Now, I have often described it as roof ball that lasted. It began to have rules when people said, this game is really good enough that we ought to build a court. And so we better have some dimensions. We better have some ideas so that the courts are somewhat similar. But they really might have evolved from either a street scene, which some people describe, and there are advocates of that idea, and some suggest that it might have begun in the courtyard of a monastery, and those people have their views as well. And I think that the real answer is it probably began any place where people could play with a ball, 
against something. And I'm being deliberately evasive about the something because of the somewhat unique nature of the court. Generally, there is a picture with which to divide, to uh, describe the court and to point things out. But I'm going to try to do this understanding that there isn't a picture for your listeners. With that in place, maybe just a quick summary of the rules, going from the abstract, ball against the wall, use of a racket component. When did it get to a place where the term court tennis meant a specific sport? And what did that encompass? It probably became a specific sport, but it was called jeu de pomme, the game of the palm, when it was played in France. And I would say that that would have happened in the 1300s. You can imagine, think of a tennis court, and to give you a sense of the dimension of a tennis court, the dimension is the same as a regular tennis court, except from fence to fence. Rather than the lines, think of it as all the way to the fences. And that's about the size of a court tennis court. It is asymmetrical, both end to end. The two ends are different. And it is asymmetrical side to side. The two sides are different. And The rules are fairly complicated. The rules were actually used, they were absorbed by tennis as everybody else knows it. And all the things that are endemic to that sport, six games to a set, 15, 30, 40 game, deuce advantage, all of those sorts of things all came from court tennis. The challenges in terms of rules are that we don't take turns serving. If, as I described, the two ends of the court are asymmetrical, it doesn't take you long to figure out that if the two ends are different, surely one of them is better. And indeed, that's the case. If you are at the serving end of the court, you will two equal players, the person at the serving end will win 11 points out of 20. If you win 11 points out of 20, you rarely lose a set. And it is enough of an edge to have you win more frequently than the other person does. So you need to come up with a way to say to share the serving end. And all of the complexity, and that's the sort of Achilles heel of court tennis, is that it has very complicated rules. And all of the complexity relates to sharing the serving end. And we do it differently than regular tennis does. In regular tennis, you take turns. In court tennis, you have to earn it. And the rules relate to what you have to do to earn the serve. In short strokes, what do you have to do to earn the serve? Is it more than winning the point? You need to make the other guy miss the ball entirely. That's where it gets complicated, and that's where we could really go down a rabbit hole. Whereas I think if we stay with, let's decide that that would be court tennis 102 or 103, but probably for today we ought to stay at court tennis 101. Fair enough. So long lineage associated with the sport. Who are some of the famous players or maybe the legends of the sport that people, if they want to dive in more, could either look people up or if the names resonate, they'd be able to have a conversation with somebody who's deeper into the sport than most? The person that everybody thinks of is Henry VIII. And Henry VIII, with all of his six wives and so forth, was not only a player of court tennis, but a builder of court tennis courts one of which is at Hampton Court Palace. Uh, That one was built in 1530. And there was a suggestion that that was where Anne Boleyn was arrested. That's not true. She was not arrested while watching court tennis. She was betting on court tennis 
when she got wind of the fact that there was trouble. And it's probably not true either that Henry VIII was playing court tennis when Anne Boleyn was executed. But a lot of people tell you that it is. I'm not enough of an original source historian to have gone into that, but there certainly have been conversations about it, and I suspect they may be slightly apocryphal. Among more recent people, there was a fellow that was a Basque called Pierre Echebaster, who was actually the world champion for 28 years. He became world champion in about 1928 and continued into the 1950s. I actually took some lessons from Pierre. He was a very colorful figure. I also went to see his family in Saint-Jean-de-Luz in France, and I went to the Patisserie Etchebaster, described in pretty decent French, that I was a tennis player and knew Pierre Etchebaster. I said, are there any of his relatives whom I might be able to shake hands with? And the word came back that no one was interested in hearing about him because he had left his wife and children in both World War One and World War Two and stayed in America. He was a better court tennis player than apparently he was a family man. He's an interesting fellow. Another guy that I spent a great deal of time with actually on this project is a guy called Chris Ronaldson, who was world champion in the 80s. He has stayed deeply involved in the game incredibly thoughtful guy and is involved in pretty much anything that moves the game forward. He's a real thinker. He is going to publish a book that I'm writing on playing in all the courts in the world. I'm a major fan of Chris Ronaldson. There were two brothers who were the world champions, and they were Pete and Jimmy Bostwick, both of whom played in New York. Extraordinarily good athletes as hockey players, golfers, tennis players, squash players, rackets players, court tennis players, and pretty much anything that involved a bat and ball. And those were two pretty good ones. Rob Fahey is the world champion at the present time. He is 52 years old, which tells you that you can play this game a lot longer than many others. And his challenger for the moment is Camden Revere, who's a much younger guy in his 30s, from Aiken, South Carolina. Hamden actually did win the world championship once, but then Rob took it back from him. And it's a challenge event. There will be another one coming up whenever COVID lifts. So 10,000 players, court tennis courts, not in a lot of places. There aren't a lot of them built. You certainly don't hear about them as part of a typical municipal park or anything like that. I know of them in sort of the Northeast and Aiken, South Carolina, and in France and England and scattered. What are the famous courts and where are they? It's alleged that at a particular moment before the French Revolution, the French Revolution was not kind to court tennis. It had two real strong suits. One was with the aristocracy and the other was at the exact opposite end where it was very much a gambling game. And it's entirely possible that court tennis courts were found adjacent to houses of prostitution, definitely next to bars, eating establishments and so forth. There was an entertainment for a restaurant owner. I think of that place on the east side that has a bocce court, that restaurant. And I figure that that's what a court tennis court would have been like in medieval France. In any event, there was a period of time in which there were said to be 200 courts in Paris. Probably most famous of those actually adjacent was the court in Versailles, which was the site of the tennis court oath. And the tennis court oath, if you recall, was June 20 of 1789, about three weeks before the storming of the Bastille. And the Estates General was meeting to design a new republic in France. 
they were using various rooms and King Louis at the time decided that there was nothing good happening in those meetings, nothing good for him. So he locked up all the rooms and he kept them away from any meeting place. And so they were in search of a big space and they found his tennis court and into the tennis court they went. Uh, it's interesting because if you can imagine a game that is played essentially in a shoebox. Now, it's a shoebox with some aberrations, but if you play a game inside a box, you have to be able to get in there. And sure enough, in court tennis, there is a door. And everybody who plays the game goes through essentially the same door. It's right by the net. And when the Estates General went through that door to have their meetings and promise that they were not going to disband until they had come up with a new constitution. Some of them, unsurprisingly, went in one direction and some of them went in a different direction. If you and I went and we felt the same way about things, we want to stand next to each other. We want to point our fingers at our adversaries on the other end. So some people went through the door and went to the left and others went through the door and they went to the right. And that is the origin of left and right throughout politics, throughout the world. A group of people walked into a court tennis court, and there it is. Other courts, I mean, I mentioned Hampton Court Palace is a fabulous place for a visitor to England to go and see Hampton Court Palace and to see how extraordinarily large and awesome it really was. And that has a court tennis court, which I think is going to have to be one of the more famous ones. There are two of them at Queen's Club in London, which is a very attractive club. The Marylebone Cricket Club, Lords, is the center of cricket on earth, and they have a court tennis court. There are two of them at the Racket and Tennis Club in New York. Boston has one at the Tennis and Racket Club. Chicago has a beautiful one. Philadelphia does as well. I think one that amuses me greatly is at a private court uh, called Hardwick. And Hardwick is in the Thames Valley to the west of London. And it has a number of fun stories that are related to it. The Lord Rose, who owned it, actually was the model for Mr. Toad in Wind in the Willows. So he must surely have been a very colorful character. But one of the things that he did was to send his wife off on a round-the-world trip in the sort of late 1800s, early 1900s, and he had a court on his property, but it wasn't close enough to his house. And so he wanted his court to be closer to his house. So off goes the wife, and in comes the construction crew, and he builds a new court for himself in the middle of her rose garden. It is slightly catty corner. It's not at a 90 degree angle to his house. It's slightly catty corner to the house, which is odd. And it directly obstructs the view of the Thames River from the house. So he must have been a pretty eccentric fellow and he must have had a pretty lousy time when the wife returned from her journey to discover that a four story court tennis court had been built in her rose garden. I could see that being a fatal error. Another one that's absolutely lovely was owned by Jock Whitney. It's in Manhasset, Long Island. It's called Green Tree, and that is now used as a conference center by the UN. Uh, the court is in beautiful shape, but they don't really have time for us to play on it. And it's a shame because that is really a, a mecca of the game. Melbourne would be another one in Australia. The palace at Fontainebleau has a lovely court. It's the biggest one in the world. There are not 50 of them. There have been some variation up and down over the years that I've been involved with it, but the total number of courts is less than 50. 
Tell us a little bit about your current project. You're involved with the building of a new one, so that's got to be exciting. It is. I wish it wasn't the second one I had done. The first one uh, took place in the 1990s. We built a court in a public sports club and became tenants of theirs. That has lasted for 23 years. They would like us to pay more rent for the facility than we do. And they are very likely to have entire building be turned into something entirely else. It's become a very desirable neighborhood for office buildings and apartment complexes and so forth. And so continuing to make use of it for a gym is not a good idea from their perspective. So we had to move. We're going to be moving to a country club not very far away. And we will be part of a four-court indoor tennis complex that they are building. The architects have done an absolutely wonderful job. They've come up with some really interesting ideas of how to put these two games next to each other. They are related. Indeed, one is the parent of the other. And how to be able to show that evolution in the space between the two courts. And we've been working on it now for about six months is where this particular aspect of the project began. And we've raised quite a bunch of money. We will be beginning construction in March. That's exciting. So when you're talking to the architects and you've got courts that each have their own foibles, how did you decide how to make this one its own thing? Did you solicit opinions from the court tennis community? Were there too many opinions? Were people who wanted a severe court and people who wanted a conservative one? How did you parse that out for the project? It's interesting. I wrote a little story about this. There's a section in the story that is responsive to a question, what is the goal? And what I wrote was, it is certainly not to please everyone. The world's 10,000 players are an opinionated and fractious lot for whom the strength of opinion is not always highly correlated with fact. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of things. You all have different skill sets and people tend to be responsive to the courts on which they play the best. I had a great win. Yeah, I love that place. Or I got slaughtered. What a terrible court that must be. It can't be me. There are going to be many, many different opinions about it. Basically, it is very much like baseball stadiums. They're too expensive to decide that one of them is obsolete. You can't very well go talk to the people at Fenway Park and say, the green monster means you're not really a baseball stadium because it's too expensive to replace it. If you only have 50 courts, we do know what the dimensions of them are. We know that the smallest one is in Oxford and the largest one is in Fontainebleau. And clearly, you want to be between those two. Interestingly, the difference between the smallest and the largest could be eight or 10 feet in length and could be two or three feet in width. And that's pretty substantial when you're looking at something that essentially is 110 feet long. A much, much smaller one is going to be quite noticeable. Essentially, you're looking to try to keep the game as it has been. One of the goals would be to have a player from 1850 step out of his time machine and look at what we've done and have him say, oh, I know that game. I used to play that when I was alive. That's where we would like to be. In the time that I have been playing, which is now 60 years, the speed of the ball has increased by 50%. This, according to a professional, everything has gotten better. It's very much the same as in golf or tennis or any number of things where the golf clubs are better, the balls are better. It's troubling to golf course designers 
that if it was aimed at people who could hit a ball 225 or maybe 250 yards, it's a very different experience if they can hit it 350 yards. So you don't want all the golf courses to become extinct. You don't want them to be obsolete. And you'd like to control the equipment. Clearly, controlling the ball, controlling the equipment is the easiest thing to do because the dimensions are what they are. There was a period of time when a guy called Gene Scott was a wonderful Yale tennis player, Davis Cup tennis player, lawyer, a great tennis developer. He was very good at this game, and he wanted to play with a Wilson T2000. He was good volleyer, very tall, long arms. Gene Scott with a Wilson T2000, which could hit the ball much, much harder than anybody else could, would have been a bad idea. And it was a bad idea, and in fact, they wouldn't allow it. But you do have to control the weaponry because you are playing inside a shoebox and the ball not only could hit you straight on, it could bounce off something and hit you and you wouldn't like it. Is there a USGA or a Royal and Ancient that controls this or is it still fractured enough that you get a symmetry between the equipment and maybe even the rules? Each country has its own governing body because one of the things that aging athletes do is they decide that it's time to take off their white shorts and put on a blue blazer and tell everybody else how to behave. And this is a absolutely endemic in core tennis that it totally exists. So the Tennis and Rackets Association in England is their governing body. They have about 60% of the world's players. So they're probably the most important one. The US Court Tennis Association is our governing body. And we have about 20% of the players. And so that's quite an important one. The Australia Real Tennis Association looks after about 20% of the players in Australia. And then France has a much smaller percentage and a much smaller number of courts, but they have also got a governing body as well. The rules, with the exception of one rule that differs in France, they don't really differ by much. Everybody wants to stay pretty much the same. And because one of the developments that has happened, certainly more recently, certainly in my lifetime, is that the whole cost of travel has plummeted. So it's entirely possible for someone to say, yeah, I want to go over to France and I want to play at Bordeaux and I want to play in Fontainebleau. And there are some courts of a related game in the Basque country in southwestern France. And that's what I'm going to do. And so you could have visitors from any number of places. People go to Australia fairly routinely. It's no trick at all for people from England to come to the United States and vice versa. So that all drives a similarity. You want the game to look the same to the extent possible. With Zoom calls and email and so forth, you're not sending airmail envelopes across the ocean and waiting six weeks for a reply. And you're not traveling by horse and buggy from one place to the other. So you, you can get there and, and standardization happens as a result. The rackets have dimensions. The heads are rather small. They're made of wood. They have reinforcement so that they don't break as much as they used to do. But the weaponry could be a lot stronger than it is. We've constrained it and I think done the right thing. What's the best way to follow the sport? It's not on ESPN for sure, but there's enough going on and the reach is global. How do you keep track of it if you're somebody who listens to this or maybe has heard about it somewhere else and you want to know more about it? You can go online even to platforms like Facebook particularly 
And the various governing bodies of the game have an online presence. And one of the things that is wonderful is that we stream important matches over the internet. So I can sit here at my computer if I chose not to go to England to watch the world championship, and I can sit here at my computer and I can watch it. And there's a wonderful guy who's a good friend of mine. He lives here in Washington called Ryan Carey. And Ryan Carey has completely invented the whole world of streaming court tennis matches. There is a YouTube channel that has them on it at the USCTA, U.S. Court Tennis Association. It can be found and you can Google court tennis and it's going to guide you in the right directions. You can get into it. And then if you're fortunate enough to live in the cities in which a court is located, you can begin to nose around and find out how to play. Really cool stuff. This has been a fun conversation. I always like learning about these types of things. And a sport like court tennis is such a cool little niche, and it's got its peculiarities around it that make it a lot of fun to dive into and to go down that rabbit hole, which is great. I'll have some links to investigate in the show notes as well. Haven, thanks a lot for being on. I appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. You can probably tell it's a subject of some importance to me, and I enjoyed it. And if people are interested in getting in touch, I suppose that'll be in the show notes as well. And I welcome your inquiries. Terrific. Thanks a lot, Haven. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to wealthactually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually.